This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, and this is just a masterclass in all things agency growth. If you want to build an agency that literally takes care of itself, then you've come to the right place because Rob DeCosta has written the book on the subject. It's not often that I come off one of these recordings with a guest and actually think to myself, I need to rethink the way that I'm doing everything in my business. Um, Where do I even begin with this conversation? We talk about what the right structure of your agency needs to look like, depending on your size, how to price appropriately, having a business development plan and sticking to it, how agency owners should think about dividing their time. Just choose an adjective for Rob. He's brilliant, smart, revered. I'm actually ashamed that I didn't know of him before we recorded this. And now that I have, I've discovered his work. I'm just a huge fan of everything that he does. I've followed him everywhere on all the socials. If you're remotely interested in anything to do with how to grow a successful, profitable agency that runs itself, then this is a masterclass and an absolutely fascinating conversation that you will love. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Rob DeCosta. My extra special guest this week is Rob DeCosta. He helps SME agencies increase profits by working with management teams to set strategy and focus on the core activities that will make a difference, as well as face-to-face and online coaching. He offers a group coaching program, The Self-Running Agency. He is an author of a book by the same name and the host of the Agency Accelerator podcast. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation, Rob DeCosta. Welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Fantastic. Thank you, Nathan. It's great to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast and listen to lots of your guests. So I'm honored to be um, one of the guests on the podcast. Thank you so much. The money is in the mail on the way to you right now. I'm a huge fan of your your podcast as well. Like I've only recently come come across it, but it's absolutely fascinating. And I, I look forward to listening to a lot more. So let's start with your background and history first before we dig into the finer details. In 1993, you started your own tech-focused PR agency and grew it to about 25 people, turnover around one and a half million. How did that experience building your own agency from scratch inform the advice that you give to agency owners today? Yeah, I think I think I can teach a lot of people how not to do it, I think is probably mm-hmm. the first piece of advice. I think when I started out as a naive, young, 23, 24-year-old, thinking I could conquer the world, um, I had no support. So I kind of learned on the job. I learned by making lots of mistakes, you know, back in the early 90s, you know, coaching and mentoring and all that kind of stuff wasn't that well known. So, um, yeah, so I, I just learned a lot on the job. I think everything was very dependent on me as we grew the agency. And over time, I learned that I need to hire really great staff and delegate as much down as possible. And I think the biggest thing is that we didn't really have a plan. So we grew very organically. We let a lot of external factors dictate our sort of trajectory of travel. And so, you know, certainly I would be saying to my clients today, look, it's super important to have a plan. You need to know where you're headed. I think as well, we had two big clients uh, that made up a large percentage of our revenue and we lost both of those clients. Oh, we had them for about nine years, so they stayed with us a long time, but we lost both of those clients 
within about 12 months of each other because both of them got acquired by other agencies. So we lost other businesses rather. So we lost those clients through no fault of our own. And that meant we lurched from the sort of feast to famine. And so now I'm all about helping my clients make sure that that doesn't happen to them and that they have a plan and that they put a really strong management team beneath them as they grow so they can delegate down as much as possible leaving them to focus on the things that only they can do which is usually plotting the course for their agency so you you're the author of the self-running agency that's a, a bold name and a bold claim how does an agency run itself yeah so uh, yeah I, I did a lot of research a lot of questioning my audience to come up with that name and i guess the premise of the book isn't that people literally want to run an agency that create an agency that can run itself, mm. but one that can run more independently of them. That's the goal. I think what people want in the long term is they want the flexibility and freedom of running their own business, but they also want control. And sometimes those two are mutually exclusive. And so the self-running agency is all about putting the structures in place so that you can get your team delivering much of the client work and it leaves you, the owner, to either focus on the things that you're really great at, which is typically, like I said, looking at the future of your agency and often in that business development space. But it may well be that they want to have flexibility and freedom to pursue other interests. You know, when I got to the end of my 11 years of running my agency, the only way out I saw was selling the business. And that's what I got very fixated on. And that's what we did in the end. But now I realize that there are many other options when it comes to succession planning, such as building a team that can run the business for you, having a management buyout, getting funding, all sorts of things. So I think a self-running agency is one that has the structures in place so that the agency owners or the agency founders can either have the flexibility and freedom to put their foot in other areas or focus on the things that they're really good at and get away from just being stuck in the weeds of client service. So that's what the self-running agency means it's an aspirational thing but it's a thing that I think a lot of agency owners aspire to no matter what stage of their business they are at. Give, give us an idea of what type of agency owners this generally applies to um, what size of agencies are we talking about here what sort of services does your model apply to just give us an idea of who the typical agency owner is that you're speaking to. Yeah, well, so there's two parts to that. My typical client is is any kind of agency. So a lot of people just focus on digital agencies. I'm focused on the full gamut because when I ran my agency, it started out as a PR agency and it grew to become a full service marketing agency. So I'm talking about PR agencies, web design, web development, SEO, PPC, content, digital, that whole range. So I think it applies to it applies to anybody and to be quite honest Nathan it applies to any size business it's just what your aspirations are you know some people absolutely love doing what they do they don't want to change that and 20 years later with a team of 100 they still like getting their their hands dirty but at the end of the day this is the key this is the key point really that when someone starts a business they are this amazing entrepreneurial person that's got the business going and their enthusiasm and passion shows through and that's how they win their initial clients. But over time, that same skill gets in the way and stops the agency growing because every client wants to work with you and you're the person that's so much better and stronger than anyone else in your agency 
that you end up getting in your way. So all those things that made it amazing that you started your business end up being the, the obstacles that stop you growing. Mm. So if you can recognize that before that happens, then you can start to put the structures in place to get other people to service clients and to make things less dependent on you. And that's the first steps towards building a self-running agency. Well, look, we, we are your ideal target audience because we're a four-man podcasting agency, B2B podcasting agency for brands and agencies. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I have the exact same issue. You know, I started the business. It, the vision is driven by me and clients want to work with me because of the brand that we built through the podcast and, and videos and content, etc., but as we grow and win new clients, it becomes increasingly difficult to scale myself. I'm finding that I'm more and more stretched. I have less and less time. And just making sure that things are delivered on time, on budget, is becoming increasingly hard. How would you advise someone like me on how to structure my team so that I can put in place some sort of system whereby I, I can take myself out of the details of doing the day-to-day -day work? and more work on the strategy and top level thinking of the business. Yeah, so I think the your first of all, Nathan, look, you're really, really typical of an agency of your size. Like I say, you know, your it's your skill and your passion that's got your business to where you're at now, but then suddenly you find the weight of the world sitting on your shoulders and it's very difficult to get yourself out of that. So I think first of all, we have to take a step back and think about how a business grows. And you often see these um, growth curves showing how a business grows over time, but a business actually doesn't grow in a curved way. It grows in a stepped way. And the horizontal part of the step is putting the infrastructure or the platform, the systems and processes in place in order to grow. And then when you've grown, you then need to put the next set of infrastructure systems platforms in place to, to create the next stage of growth. And so I always liken that to, you know, putting an extension on your house. You don't just start building extension without the foundations because guess what? The extension is going to fall down. Mm. But a lot of agencies do that. They grow. They, they become kind of top heavy because they haven't put these systems and processes in place. And then things start to break down or the owner is so stressed that they, you know, don't want to do it anymore. And that's, if I'm honest, that's where I got to after 11 years. I was like dealing with all so much stuff that I didn't want to deal with. And, and those the things I was dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis weren't the reasons why I started my agency. So I didn't get a lot of this right, but you know that's sort of what I've learned of my lesson and working with many agencies over the years. Mm. So I think one of the things that you have to do is, first of all, you have to have a plan. Second of all, you have to document as many of your repeatable processes as you can so that you can delegate to them to other people and your clients will be guaranteed of a consistent experience no matter who's working on the account and then I think one of your questions was earlier was about well who should we be hiring and I think what you need to do is you need I would always ad advise someone when they're hiring their first or second member of staff that it should be someone that gives you a bigger capacity in your agency. In other words, someone that can do client-facing work and can either take some weight off your shoulders to free up your time or can create a bigger cup. I always use you know, a cup as my sort of metaphor for mm. capacity. Um, and you know, if you think about your time as being a cup, well, you can only really fill that to about 80% before mm. it starts overflowing. So before it gets to 80%, you need to think about getting another cup with more capacity. So I would say hire someone like your first member of staff where you possibly can afford it 
as someone who can do some of the work and take some of the client servicing work off your hands. And then second of all, start to, I know this is really tedious and entrepreneurial people hate documenting stuff, but start creating your standard operating procedures and making sure that, like I say, if, if, if Fred is working on the account rather than Jane, then Fred can give that client a consistent experience under your brand because they're delivering it in the same way. Mm. And of course, that involves you being a great teacher and being a great mentor and realizing that when you've hired someone, that's the beginning of the journey, not the solution to the problem. Because if you don't invest the time in training them and getting them into your way of doing things and understanding how to service clients, then you know they won't do a good job. Your clients will be unhappy. And before you know it, you're sucked back in to dealing with client issues this time because a client's saying, I'm not happy with Fred working on my account. Mm. So many things there to discuss. Uh, we're going to need a longer podcast. The first thing I hear you say there then is is about hiring and and hiring is a tricky one because especially with your first or or second staff, it's like, how do you balance the, you know, thinking about hiring a full-timer who is a a salaried employee versus someone who's a contractor, you know, maybe in the early days, the income isn't as secure from clients. So you're thinking about maybe bringing someone in on a part-time basis or a freelance basis. What sort of advice do you have to early stage agencies around thinking about whether they should hire full-timers or freelancers? Because there's a cultural issue to this as well. Yeah, this is a, this is a podcast on its own. <laughs> and my views on this, and I totally appreciate that not everyone will agree with this, but my view on this is in the end, long term, you want to build a robust internal team rather than building a business just on freelancers and contractors that's not to say at the beginning you wouldn't fill this capacity with a freelancer because that makes a lot of sense but what you need is your plan and your plan says when i'm consistently outsourcing x amount of revenue or time or project work to my freelancer that is the metric the kpi that tells me i need to bring this in house Mm. if you don't have a plan you'll never get to that point because you'll always be thinking oh yeah but maybe this won't carry on um, and we let me just tell you a quick story about when I ran my agency and how it evolved. So in our first few years, we were being a pure PR agency for tech companies. But our clients would say to us, can you take this case study that you've just written for the media? And could you turn it into a glossy brochure? And so we would then outsource the design work to a designer. And one day we sat down and we realized in a year we'd outsource nearly a hundred thousand pounds worth of work to a designer which was absolutely crazy we should have we should have recognized that much sooner and so what that moment told us is that we need to create a design studio so with a hundred thousand pounds back in the 90s we could hire basically two and a half to three people amazing so we set up a studio we had it we hired a a senior designer and a junior designer and that was the start of us growing a studio so i think It makes a lot of sense in the early days to outsource to a freelancer, to bring someone in a few days a week, maybe to look at temp to perm. There's lots of variations that you can do, but know what the metrics are to say, this is when I'm going to bring it in-house. Because the reason why I don't think, and I think you probably agree based on what you said, but the reason why I don't think you can build a really sustainable agency just using freelance staff is that they won't always buy into your values Mm. and your culture and they have their own agenda which is why they're freelancing and it may not be aligned to your agenda their agenda might be 
you know, flexibility and freedom. Their agenda might be to grow an agency, yeah. but it won't be aligned to yours. So they are a fantastic resource. I always tell my clients, freelancers are great in three scenarios. First of all, when you're starting out and you want to get capacity, but you can't afford to hire a full-time person. Second of all, as you grow, you might want to have specialist skills that you don't want to have in-house. So for example, if you are a web designer and a client says to you, can you help us run a PPC campaign to drive traffic to the website? You probably don't want to have an AdWords, Facebook ads person in, in-house, but you might want to provide that service to clients. So using freelancers then to have specialist skills that you don't want to have in-house. And then the third scenario is when, as you grow and you have short-term capacity issues, it's great to have a pool of freelancers that you can outsource to, to give you a short-term increase in capacity. But again, you've got to monitor that really carefully. So at the point you realize, well, actually we've been outsourcing this for six months now, we really should bring it in house. So I would always say to a client, look, have some certain profit and revenue targets in mind. And when you've hit them consistently for, say, three to four months, that's your trigger point to start recruiting somebody. Really fascinating. Let's talk about the plan that you've mentioned a couple of times now. What should this plan look like? Is this a financial plan? Is it an is it a reputation in the market? Is it a size of agency? How far in the future should we be thinking about this plan is it a six-month plan a two-year plan what is this plan that you that you speak yeah. of <laughs> yeah sure so i'm a big fan of keeping it simple and so the first thing i'm going to say is that a plan a business plan is not a finance plan a lot of people i mean i meet a client and i say have you got a plan i say yes i have and i'll say can you present it to me and usually what they'll have is some kind of finance plan and maybe some kind of organization chart that looks at how many people they might need in the future. Sure. But that's like looking at your business in very two-dimensional way. And actually a plan needs to look at things such as who your core uh, market is, what your core products and services are, um, what's your sales strategy, what's your marketing strategy, what systems and processes do you need to support this growing business? How many team members do you need? Obviously, what are your finances? So it's a, it's looking at your agency in a very holistic, sorry to use that word, way. Right. But having said all of that, because I'm making it sound complicated, it isn't. So I use a really simple three-page um, vision with my clients. And the first tab is all about the long-term goals of the business. And so it's, let's typically say it might, it would be say three, five years, three years, one year, quarter month that's how you're going to break it down and all i say the five-year plan is is just simply giving a sense of direction mm. you're not committing to anything you say in there but if we were planning a car journey and i said okay i think our car journey should take us to the south of france and you said no i want my car journey to take us to scotland then we've already got some issues around, if you and I were business partners, we've got some issues around where we want our business to go. Sure. So the long-term plan is just simply saying we want to go to the south of France. And it's putting some kind of rough lines in the sand that we totally have permission to change over time as we learn today what we didn't know yesterday. So that's very simple. It's like a, it's like a, you know, a five-line document and it's got some ideas of like what are our revenue targets for then. And, you know, and that's really important because there is no blueprint of how an agency grows. It's all about what the, the agency owner wants. And sometimes 
people start creating plans of what they think an agency should look like in, say, five years' time, mm. as opposed to what they really want their agency to be. So I always tell my clients that there is no right or wrong about this. You might want to build a lifestyle agency. You might you might want to build an agency that you that's still really you're in the center of. You might want to build a 20-person agency, a 100-person agency, one that can run without you. There's all these options and they're all open to you. It's just what you want. Mm. So that's the five year. And then the three year takes that detail and breaks it down into a little bit more detail, but we're still only giving a sense of direction. And then when it gets to be more detailed is when we look at the one year plan. And the one year plan is simply going to say, these are some of our targets for the year, finance and people and all that stuff. What are the up to seven projects that we need to work on in our business to deliver this one year plan. And, and seven is the magic number here. I will never let my clients have more than seven projects. And no, it could be four projects, but these are the working on the agency projects. These are sure. the projects that, that you're going to focus on. So they will be around those areas I mentioned earlier, marketing, right. sales, products, clients, um, systems and processes, people, mm. and so on. And then you take the seven yearly projects and now we're going to go in the next quarter which part of those seven projects are we focusing on in the next quarter we again we can only have a maximum of seven projects that we're working on but we're going to break the year projects down into a quarter and identify which ones we are starting on this quarter and then we take the quarter projects and we break them down into our monthly tasks and our monthly tasks are simply like our to-do list for our business mm. so what in of those quarterly projects that we're working on in this quarter which what are the things that we need to do? And then I encourage my clients to take that and put it into their diary. Now, I always say that vision document should be the basis for your management meeting. So as you grow, even if you're a small agency, you want to get into the habit of starting to have like a monthly management meeting, senior leadership team meeting, even if it's with yourself, sure. so that it is it's sacrosanct time where you're going to look at this plan and you're only going to work on your business. And the reason why that works really well is because using the plan as the basis for your discussions keeps the conversation in a strategic space as opposed to diving into the weeds and talking about problem client X or right. problem team member Y, sure. which there's a time and a place for those conversations, but it's not when you're spending that hour every month working on the future of your business. And of course, each time you do that, you're going to be amending and changing this plan based on what you know today. And, and that's one thing I would say that visions and plans have to be super dynamic. Because let's face it, if there's anything that the pandemic taught us is that we never know what's around the corner and we need to be nimble and dynamic. We can't cast things in stone. So if you want to know, if you want to know two reasons why business plans fail or three, one of them is because they don't look at it thoroughly enough. Two is because they do their sort of two day off site, you know, away day once a year, cast it in stone and then use it to beat themselves up. And the third reason why plans fail is because the agency owners don't bring the team along with them. Mm. So you've got, if you've got a plan, if, if, if you and I've decided we want to go to the South of France, now we've got to convince the rest of the team, if we have a team that they want to come to the South of France with us. So how we communicate that and, you know, answer that what's in it for me question, which is what every member of staff is going to think when you present the, the vision to them. So, yes, yeah, so that's sort of, that's my kind of sort of thoughts on what a, um, of what a business plan should be really fascinating we've got i've got a million more questions to ask you but um let's talk a little bit about the five areas of concern for agencies that you mentioned in your book 
pricing, niching, the importance of having a plan, which we've covered, having a proper business development plan in place, um, sales and, and marketing, which is absolutely fascinating. And then how best should agency owners divide their time? All of those are like five hour conversations that we can go really deep into. I want to touch on pricing for a moment because this is a really fascinating one. You spend a lot of time talking about value-based pricing. Yeah, uh, I've read a couple of books on value-based pricing recently. Totally changed the way that I do things at the agency. The best way that I've you know, thought about it is, you know, you go into a Louis Vuitton store and you see in the window a t-shirt for 500 pounds or a thousand pounds. No one's going to spend a thousand pounds on t-shirt, but they don't want you to spend a thousand pounds on t-shirt. They want you to go in and see the 100 pound t-shirt or the 200 pound t-shirt and relative to the 1000 pound one outside in the window, that one looks cheap. So is that a good definition of sort of value-based pricing? What what else do you add yeah. to this and, and sort of, yeah, talk a little bit about yeah. value-based pricing? Yeah, that's a, I've not heard I've not heard that before, so that's a great one. I have to use that. Let me just tell you a really quick story to highlight what value-based pricing is and it isn't. So um last summer, um pre well probably the summer before pre-pandemic, I woke up on a Sunday morning with really bad toothache. And I don't know if you've ever had a really bad toothache, but it's not very pleasant. And it. yeah, and um I was in agony and I couldn't get an emergency appointment on the Sunday, so I had to wait till monday morning and get an emergency appointment with my dentist i went to the dentist i sat in the chair they did an x-ray they said look rob you've got a really bad infection it's tooth right at the back of my jaw the best thing to do is take the tooth out i'm like yeah do whatever you need to do get rid of my pain and so really quick process gave me an injection didn't hurt pulling the tooth out really quick because i think it's infected and immediately the pain had gone and then i got up to the so this i was probably only in the dentist chair for maybe 20 minutes half an hour went up to the reception and they said, Rob, that's 300 pounds. Now, if I'd have turned around to them and said, blimey, 300 pounds is a lot of money for half an hour's work. Mm. The dentist could turn around to me and say, well, if we took three hours to get rid of your pain, so 100 pounds an hour, would that make it more valuable to you? And I'm like, no, of course not. I just wanted you to get rid of my pain. Yeah. That's kind of, that highlights two things, really, sort of value-based pricing, but also why we should not be selling time to our clients mm. because although the dentist is literally getting rid of our pain we are all getting rid of pain for our clients mm. whether it be our website just doesn't reflect our brand and the pain is that it's damaging us whether it be we're just not getting a lot of good quality leads coming into our agency so we need a ppc seo campaign whether it be our logo is out of date and you know it, it we need to change it if we can identify the pain that we solve for our clients and then we can price against solving that pain, then we are starting to have a value-based pricing conversation. Mm. And I think um, I am a massive fan of this and, and I also appreciate that there was a, I saw a really good um, stat the other day that showed it's only about 20% of agencies use a value-based pricing approach. And I think it's because they're really fearful of it. So it just starts off by having a conversation with your client to understand what the outcome of what they're looking for is and what the and therefore what the transformation from being in pain to not being in pain is and then creating your proposals against that's that outcome and then of course internally yes you've got to work out time and you've got to work out inputs let me just quickly say that we sell 
we do four things when we sell a project to a client. Then those four things are inputs, outputs, outcomes, and impacts. So inputs are the things that we need to do, the time and materials that, that we need. So if I'm doing a web campaign, a website for a client, I've got to work out which developers I need. I've got to work out what software I need to use. Um, and that's the inputs. The outputs are, if we carry on with the web um, analogy, the outputs are like the wireframe designs, the initial sort of stuff you're going to show the client. And then obviously the web pages themselves, the outcomes are, and, and those inputs and outputs is what we do as an agency, what the client really cares about are outcomes and impacts. So the outcome is the net result of what the client's looking for. And that's how we price against that. So that's a brand spanking new website that reflects my brand that I'm really proud of and that starts generating leads for my business. That's the outcome that the client's looking for. And then the last point is impact. And the impact is what is the longer term impact of the intervention of this project I've done for my client? Now, I appreciate we can't always measure that, but if you have those conversations with a client when you're in that prospect stage, so you're you're being you're asking them like what would success look like? What's the outcomes that you're looking for? How will everyone assess the um, success of this campaign? If you have those conversations, mm. and then you price against those conversations, it becomes so much easier than talking about time or even just like fixed project fees. So you're still going to give a fixed fee, but the fixed fees are against an outcome rather than a, yeah. a, a bunch of tasks that you're going to do because no one cares. When I went to the dentist, I didn't say. Can you tell me how long this is going to take? Can you take me through the steps that you're going to use? Because if they did, I'd probably run a mile. You just wanted the pain gone. To go, yes. Right? <laughs> Straight away. And that's what our clients want. You know, when clients come to me, the pain is usually that they're hitting their head against a brick wall, that they're, they've grown so far, but they just can't get beyond, beyond the next hurdle. Um, the pain is that they're lurching from feast to famine, and it's really painful when their agency's in a famine space. Those are the pains that I identify with my clients. And, and that's what you as an agency have to do the same thing with your clients. Mm. So pricing, huge one. And it, it, it is really interesting. I have, I won't obviously mention who they are, but in my group coaching program, I have two, and this actually is the second point, but I have two very, very niched agencies. One works in crisis management in the legal profession. So they're dealing with, you know, keeping bad stories out of the press. And the other one works in with big land owners. And again, they do a lot of crisis comms. I mean, they literally had someone who died on a building site. And so they had to deal with that. Mm. One of these two, and they both kind of internally have to calculate time, but one of these two charges about nearly £3,000 a day for what they do. And the other one charges about £350. They both are providing a super niche, super valuable specialist service but this one is thinking, what is the value to the client and what's the pain I'm removing? And this one's thinking more about, you know, how much time is it taking us and all that stuff. And we can't possibly charge that fee because a, a big part of pricing is mindset. Huge. So you've like got to get your mindset right so that you're not yeah. making a personal judgment whether you're cheap or expensive, like the T-shirt thing as well. Definitely. It's about your own sense of value and kind of what your own, what you're worth, what you think that you're worth and what what you think other people can afford and you have no idea what other people can afford or what other people think is expensive or other or what other people think is cheap it's your own it's your own perceptions of value that are coming to the place when you're 
when you're pricing your services. And I think so a huge part of what you're talking about is is actually psychology and getting the agency owner to understand their own value and to price their value accordingly. Especially if, especially sorry to interrupt you, especially if they're coming from a time-based or fixed project-based approach, they, sure. they, they really find it very difficult to switch to this approach. So we have to find the baby steps that they can take. So sometimes it would be, I don't know, literally like taking off time off their monthly reports or stop giving them a task list in a monthly report and actually start talking about where they're at towards delivering that outcome so it's like Mm. taking baby steps and then it's then it's when you get your next proposal let's look at how you write your proposal and let's look at how you price that and try that one in a more value-based pricing way Mm. now the what goes hand in hand that is the second of those five areas that you mentioned which is niching because the more uh niched a business you are the more specialist you are, the higher your fees can be. And also the client recognizes you as a specialist and therefore is going to be willing to pay more money. So fundamentally, the niche agency always wins against the generalist and that helps you get this pricing conversation right. I can't believe that this is still a conversation in in agency land. I thought this now had been done to death and we all understand and appreciate that the niche you know the niche agencies or the niche that you are in fact that's what agencies help their clients to do to niche to focus to create a differentiated value proposition in the marketplace but when it comes to their own businesses and their own agencies agencies can't really get their head around focusing and niching in one particular area is this still a discussion we need to have yeah so i was running a webinar yesterday and Part of that webinar, we were talking about niching and someone commented, this is so typical. I totally understand the theory about niching, but I'm really nervous about doing it because of losing existing or potentially new clients. Interesting. And I to- that is the conversation I have time and time again. It's this fear of if I narrow down, I will lose business. And I simply ask people, how much of this fictitious business that you fear you will lose are you actually winning at the moment? And the answer is usually not very much. Mm. And again, it's a mindset thing. So mm. my my advice to people is niche as narrow and as you possibly dare and broaden out over time, even when the opportunity arises and it's deemed appropriate. That is such a smart strategy to do. You know, when I started the cost of coaching back in 2007, I was really unsuccessful for the first 18 months and really difficult. I was trying to be a generalist coach and I, in theory, could work with Barclays Bank one day and then a small startup agency the next. But the reality was I wasn't winning the big corporates because I didn't have the experience. Mm. And if I spoke to a small startup and said, hey, I work with Barclays Bank, their immediate reaction would be, well, you won't understand me. So um, when I decided to niche down, and for me, it was really easy decision because, you know, my background was agencies and I thought that it was a good space to be in. My business just took off then. So, you know, I'm a good living example of the value of niching. But it is a conversation I have a lot. And it's worth reminding us that you can niche in a number of ways. It isn't just by the sector that you serve, but it can be by the problem that you solve. It can be by geography and and so on. So there's a number of ways of cutting a niche. But it is still a conversation, Nathan, that I have a lot with people. And I'll tell you something else. I'll meet a prospect or I meet someone and they tell me that they're niched. Then I'll go and look at their website and it doesn't show that niche (laughs) at all. 
Interesting. And so I'm like, okay, hang on a second. You said you're specialized in financial services. Sure. Or and you're a WordPress web developer in financial services, but I can't see that on your website because you're hedging your bets still. Interesting. And it doesn't work. So you just have to be brave and niche down and then mm. it's like what's the worst that could happen? Well, you know, you can change and evolve and you know, my niche has ebbed and flowed over the years, but um I can give you you know, a hundred stories of successful niched businesses and probably another hundred of businesses that refuse to and carry on struggling. Really fascinating. Rob, I can speak to you about this all day, but we're fast running out of time and I cannot let you go without asking our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. If you've listened to the show, you know, you know, this section of the show. Um, so I'm going to ask you a few of these now, fire some questions at you. Tell us about a time, by the way, we need to get you back on the show because we've only scratched the surface with all of this stuff. We need to have at least three or four more conversations. I'd love, I'd love to. So it's always good talking about this stuff. Definitely. Tell us about a time when you failed, and you probably already have, and what you learned from the experience. Yeah, I think, uh, I think, I, well, I've had a number of fa- failures. I think the beginning of running my coaching practice was a really tough time for me and um it was only when i had this conversation with myself which is the one that i have with lots of other clients about niching and having the courage to do that that i it started taking off i mean you know i had a number of failures in in my early career i i worked at a recruitment company for about three weeks before deciding that wasn't for me so i think in my yeah in my early career i think i did a number of things uh, that taught me the things I didn't, I don't want to do. But yeah. in my kind of running my own business, I think at the beginning of my coaching, it was a really tough time. I wouldn't say it was a failure, but I was struggling to earn money to pay the mortgage. Mm. And I think the minute I had the courage to niche down and actually just chatted this through with a mentor that I had at the time. So I think that's one thing is like get someone else that is an objective sounding board that you can talk to. And I'm not trying to necessarily be an advocate for coaching though of course I think everyone should have a coach but just finding someone that is a good listening ear that's going to ask you some questions that has no hidden agenda that's going to help you see with a bit of objectivity is a is what I did to help me realize I'm going to narrow my um, coaching practice to focus on the agency sector. What's your perspective on coaches should you get a coach that is just a little bit ahead of you that or that is significantly ahead that have been there and done it maybe 20 years ago someone in the same sector, someone in a completely different industry? What's your perspective? Because you can get lots of different types of coaches. My, my, my only two pieces of advice, one is find a coach that is a specialist in your area because okay. there is a huge difference. I, I, and again, I'm not trying to necessarily um, big me up, but I've worked with a number of clients who've worked with a generic coach in the past and found their advice too not specific generic. enough and then they've come yeah. to me. and Yeah, and then they found it to me. So I think... Um, I think there's that. And, uh, the other piece of advice is you've got to like, you've got to get on with your coach. So you have to find, you need to have like an empathy match meeting with a potential coach at the beginning Mm. to make sure that you get on with them really well, because, you know, they're going to be your trusted advisor. They're going to be your counselor. They're going to be your shoulder to cry on. They're going to be your accountability partner, Mm. all of those things. And you need to feel really comfortable with them. So find a specialist coach and find one that you really get on with coaches have got such different styles that you need to find one that really works for you our listeners favorite question tell us about some of your favorite books 
What have you read that has impacted the way that you think about growing agencies, growing businesses, and even fiction, nonfiction, whatever? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big sort of self-help reading reader, but there's three books that come to mind. So um, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, which uh, people will know, um, has been a great guide in my life to help me step outside of my comfort zone. Mm. And it's a phrase I use a lot with my clients. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I read a book called Dare. And um, Dare is a business. And it's really interesting, that without going into too much detail, I read this book. It was written by the coach for the England rugby team when they won the World Cup. And I found out that he lived not very far from me. Mm. So I contacted him and he became a life coach for me for a while no to help to yeah, to help me figure out that you know that coaching would be a good career path for me. No way. Wow. And um the most recent book that's been really helpful for me is a book called The Mum Test. <laughs> okay. And it's an it's a it's a MOM. It's an American book. Okay. And um the Mum Test is all about validating ideas. And I learned so much when I was launching my program, I was recommended to read this book. Mm. And the kind of premise of it is, is that if you ask your mum, is this a good idea? She's always going to go, it's a fantastic idea, <laughs> when of course it, it isn't. And so it was a great book to help me do the validation of my group coaching program properly before I launched it, because a whole other podcast actually talking of failures, I have had a whole bunch of failed online attempts in the dim and distant past. I mean, I was mm. fortunate to start dabbling in the online world about seven or eight years ago and thinking, I know what people want and then developing it. And then of course, nobody wanted it. So the mum test was a good book to help me do this validation research phase properly and then launch something that people wanted rather than I thought they needed. Interesting. I thought the mum test, I thought you were going to say it's about keeping things simple because if you present an idea to your mum, chances are she won't really understand it. But if you make it really simple, um, you know, you, you probably have a better chance of, of communicating it to her and also the rest of the market, which a lot of people have challenges. Well, that, that's another very good, yeah. that's another very good piece of yeah. advice. Yeah, Keep it simple. I'm a big fan of that in, in everything I do. Massively. Last couple of questions and then I'll, I'll let you go. Um, Amazon Prime or Netflix? What are you watching or streaming that's good? Uh, Netflix. Amazon Prime for deliveries. Um <laughs> We just, I just finished watching Shadow and Bone. I quite like those kind of gothic-y sci-fi okay. movies. Cool. Um, and we just got Disney Plus. So I just finished watching The Mandalorian a bit late oh, to the party for that. Brilliant. But, um, brilliant. Really good. Yeah. So I'm a bit of a, when I, I don't watch a ton of TV, but my pattern tends to be watch a couple of episodes or something like that. And then watch a few yeah. YouTube videos of nice. fantasizing of traveling the world. <laughs> soon, soon couple of months Soon, absolutely let us out. exactly exactly what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start a marketing agency or start their career inside a marketing agency go for it would be my advice but find my advice would be find a few people that you really trust and you really find valuable and they can be literally mentors for you but they can also be podcasts or content because the problem today is that we are surrounded by information overload and we are surrounded by people telling you that they're they've got the five secrets to getting rich quick to starting your agency and scaling it overnight mm. and without swearing it's just a load of baloney there is no get rich quick schemes mm. and so find some people that you trust that can give you some solid advice 
and get those foundations in place. And I would say if you're thinking about starting your own agency, freelance for a year, first of all, um, because that's how most of us start anyway. We freelance and then we get busier and then we think, okay, I need some additional help. That's exactly what I did. Year one of my agency was me freelancing. But I would say go for it. I think the great thing about youth is sort of the energy and the naivety and the mm. sort of non-cynical view of the world that we have. I don't think I could do what I did back when I was 23, 24 years old because I was naive and perhaps a little bit arrogant. And I don't, I think now I'm old and gray and I don't have the same, I don't know, maybe I would, I don't know. But so I would say go for it. Um, I love being self-employed. I would never take a job with someone, even if they offered me half a million pounds, I would say no thanks. Hmm. And um, I think about it first I, at least. Well, I don't, I wouldn't because let me tell you, Nathan, when I sold my business, I did a two year earn out with a, a big American firm that bought us. And I always refer to it as my two year prison sentence because oh, really? it was a highly unpleasant experience as, oh, wow. as a lot of people who sell their own businesses find. I suddenly found obviously I'd lost control. I, it was very bureaucratic, very political. And those two years said, no, I'm never going to work for anybody else again. I like being self-employed. So mm. I, I would say go for it. And I think if you're, if you're starting out in the agency world, get some experience, get, you know, work. If you if you, if your plan is to work in the agency world and then start your own agency, go and work at a few agencies. First of all, learn the good, the bad and the ugly before you venture out on your own. It's more, although it's very simple, I think the entry point into starting your own agency is much easier today because you can work digitally and you can offer, you could go on a, you know, a Google ads course and then say you're a Google specialist, not saying that's something I would recommend, but that's what people do. And um, so it's very easy to start your business, but it's not necessarily very easy to keep it going and keep winning business. Mm. Uh, with that, we well, didn't get onto it today, but you know, when you're running your business, you gotta be a juggler. You've got to be good at running your business, good at delivering your work, good at finding future business. And you've got to do all three of those things consistently. So mm. I'd say go for it. Mm. Great I advice. have no regrets. And my final question, Rob, what is it you know about growing agency businesses today that you wish you knew seven years ago or when you were 23 all over again? Um, I mean, when I, what I wish I know knew when I started my agency was getting some help and having a plan. I think that's fundamentally, I wish I'd just got someone to be my trusted ally alongside me. And I wish that I had sat down and created a plan. So I felt like I was in more control. In the latter years of running this business, what I wish I had done much sooner is start building my mailing list. I know that sounds like a really, really tactical um, right. piece of advice, but I get a very large percentage of my business now through my mailing list. Like I'm a re I, I email my mailing list at least once a week. Um, I'm always trying to grow it. But if I'd have started it seven years ago, seven years before I did, it would be a lot bigger now. And so I wish I'd done that. That is every every guru marketing that's much marketed that's much smarter than me will tell you the same thing. Mm. Build your mailing list. It's a really boring uh, piece of advice. But it's one of those foundational marketing new business strategies that has worked for a long time and will continue to work. Email is far from dead. And on that note, just remember that you own your email list. You don't own your social media. Sure. It's a sort of rented space. So that, that's what I'd say to myself in this business. Rob, start your list. Start growing it. 
great advice. Absolutely love it. Rob, we're going to get you back on the show to uh, to go into this in a lot more detail. We've just not had the time to to cover it off. But thank you so much for doing this. No, my pleasure. I can talk to the cows come home about <laughs> all of this stuff. So, um, yeah, I'd love to come back. And thank you for having me. We have been speaking with Rob DeCosta. He is currently the author of The Self-Running Agency and the host of the Agency Accelerator podcast, We actually, which we actually didn't get time to discuss like subscribe it's a fantastic podcast if you enjoyed this conversation then head over to apple Podcasts, where you can listen to over 130 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in agency land thank you for your feedback and suggestions on linkedin and email write to me at nathanagencydealmasters.com please head over to itunes and leave us a review follow me on twitter at nathan annie we would be unable to do this show without our very own dealmasters Sarah Spence is our production assistant. Tyler Baller is our editor. Christoph Boaszczek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Masters.